It's not normal to hear what a politician really thinks of his or her colleagues in the United States House and Senate while they are still in office. McKay Coppins of The Atlantic Magazine has tried to change that with his best-selling book about Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. The book, called Romney, is a redemptive story, according to the publisher, about a flawed politician who summoned his moral courage just as fear and divisiveness were overtaking American life. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask you for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit cspan.org slash donate. McKay Coppins, why do you think Senator Romney wanted to talk all of this out with you? A great question. Um, You know, when I first approached him, I actually didn't think that he would agree to my pitch. Um, The book was my idea, but I told him I wanted all of the access I I would get if this was an authorized biography, but I wanted to maintain full editorial control. And I figured for somebody who was still in office, that would just be too much of a risk. But I think that he was he had entered this kind of new stage of his life and career where he was in an introspective mood. He was reflecting on his own, you know, his own mistakes that he had made as a uh, an office seeker. Uh, and he was also reflecting on the state of the country. After January 6th, um, something kind of shook loose in him. And he seemed to be genuinely grappling with what his party had become. He believed that there was a real threat of authoritarianism um, that that was eroding kind of at least his party's sense of democracy. And something he told me in one of our first meetings was that, um, you know, we take for granted that American democracy will just continue indefinitely. And the reality is, in his view, the American project is much more fragile than we realize. And I think he wanted to sort of issue a warning about that and uh, what he had seen inside of the Republican Party and inside of politics for the last 30 years. I don't know if I'm accurate, but I counted about 30 different interviews that you had with him over 2021, 2022, and 2023. There may have been more, but that's how many I could find that were different in your um, in your notes. What happened to your relationship with him over those 30 different interviews? And where did you have most of them? Yeah, it was even more, I think. It ended up being closer to 45. I, I, we, I might not have sourced every, uh, you know, some of the interviews didn't yield as much material as others. But, you know, it's an interesting relationship, the relationship between subject and biographer, right? It, on the one hand, it was very intimate. And I, you know, a lot of our meetings took place at his home in Washington, about a mile from the Capitol. It was usually at night. Um, 
And, you know, he was incredibly isolated uh, for most of his time in the Senate. He didn't have a lot of Republican friends. Uh, He didn't really have a lot of friends at all in Washington. He spent most nights, at least when we first started, he spent most nights uh, alone at home, eating dinner by himself, often watching TV on this giant uh, flat screen he had on his dining room wall. And so... You know, I think that he saw me as somebody who he could vent to, who he could, uh, you know, dish to. Sometimes he was telling funny stories. Sometimes the conversations felt like almost therapy sessions. Um, there are, you know, often they felt like he was kind of a spy behind enemy lines, you know, giving me the dispatches from the Senate Republican caucus meetings or whatever. I mean, I, I think we got to know each other very well. I came to respect him in many ways, Um, you know, not just because he had sort of taken these, I I think, courageous stands in the last few years where he was often the lone Republican voice of dissent in, in the Trump era, but more, I think, for the willingness he had to ask himself difficult questions or to answer my difficult questions. You know, I, I asked him repeatedly throughout our interviews over these two years to think hard about, for example, whether he had inadvertently done anything that led to Donald Trump's rise, or if he had flirted with or indulged the far right elements of his party in a way that have led to this moment. And, you know, he didn't always like those questions. And he often pushed back at first. But then he would kind of sit back and, and reflect on them. And sometimes I would come back the next week and he would have, uh, you know, more thoughts on a question I had asked him earlier. He was honestly grappling with questions in a way that, frankly, as a political journalist who often profiles powerful people, I was not used to. You know, you're really not. You, you it, it, Sometimes my job feels like it's to, you know, trick political figures into accidental candor right um and i didn't feel like that that's what i was doing with mitt romney i actually felt like he wanted to be candid and so there was an intimacy there but there was also you know sometimes an adversarial quality to the conversations because i felt like it was my job as a journalist to sort of press him in push him into uncomfortable territory uh to think about things in a way that that was not always comfortable for him but he 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 was in and he, i give him a lot of credit for that a lot of candor in the book and here's an example talking about newt gingrich um he says he was also a ridiculous blowhard who blabbed babbled, excuse me, about America building colonies on the moon and referred to himself as, quote, the most serious systematic uh, or systemic, I'm having, no, systematic, uh, revolutionary of modern times. What's more, he embodied everything conservative voters, those inscrutable, exotic creatures Romney had spent his adult life studying were supposed to hate. Um, There's a lot of other I'm going to go over some of the others. But why do you think he was so so strong on his uh, comments about his colleagues? Well, you know, some of these comments that I publish in the book are from our interviews over two years. And, you know, uh, there are various reasons for those comments. Sometimes I think it was just frankly cathartic for him to vent about uh, what he considered the uh the hypocrisy he'd seen among his republican colleagues some of these are comments from his journals going back you know a decade or more he actually 
uh, kept very detailed journals uh, during the 2012 presidential campaign. And his impressions of Newt Gingrich, for example, um, were kind of forged in his primary campaign against Gingrich in 2012, where he came to, you know, see him as sort of a ridiculous figure, but also sort of um, was, became jealous of how much Gingrich, and I think this applies to a lot of the Republicans that he talks about, frankly, how much they seemed to understand the base of his party in a way that Mitt Romney didn't. Uh, you know, he told me that throughout uh, his political career, he's often misunderstood what the activists uh, on the right wing of the Republican Party wanted. You know, when he first started running in 2012, he thought that he could appeal to the Tea Party by talking about deficit reduction and low taxes and, uh, you know, these fiscal issues. But what he found was that when he talked about those issues in sort of a sober minded way, they, they it didn't get the same reaction from the crowds that Newt Gingrich or Rick Perry or Rick Santorum could get by sort of throwing culture war red meat to them. And it really wasn't until many years later that he looked back and realized that what he was seeing with the Tea Party was kind of the seeds of what would become the MAGA movement, the Trump movement. So, you know, I, I think that he... <laughs> His comments, whether they were from his journals or to me, express a, um, a a frustration with and also a profound disappointment with many members of his party. He believes that in the Trump era, many Republican leaders, including many people that he had gotten to know and, you know, respect, frankly, um, sold out their principles so that they could line up behind a man that they knew because they would often tell him in private, was manifestly unqualified to be president. And Mitt Romney sometimes felt like he was going crazy because they would all have these conversations in private where everyone acknowledged that Trump wasn't ready to be president, that his uh, temperament was completely wrong for the job, that his ideas were dangerous. But then in public, they would all go out and support him and they defend him and they twist themselves into rhetorical contortions to excuse him. And Romney uh, would be the only Republican who he felt like was saying the things they all agreed with. And so I think that that level of hypocrisy and cynicism is is what led him to to vent to me about it. And, and I think he did want, you know, I will I will tell you, he struggled with this because sometimes he would tell me stories about his Senate colleagues or other prominent Republicans. And then, you know, a few weeks later, he'd sort of he'd sort of say, ah, well, maybe I was a little too harsh on them. You know, maybe that maybe I'm being too judgmental. And he 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 is a person who wants to see the best in others. He he is, you know, he can be judgmental, but he also wants to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so I think those two sides of him were often in tension throughout our interviews. He says a lot of strong negative things in the book about Donald Trump. But on page 124, you've quoted him as saying this. This guy is not fake. He says 100% of what he thinks, he wrote in his journal. No veneer, the real deal. Got to love him, makes me laugh, makes me feel good, both. They just don't make people like Donald Trump very often. When you saw that in the journal, what was your reaction? Well, I immediately knew I was going to be asking him about it at the next interview. Um, 
And as you can imagine, Mitt Romney was uh, somewhat chagrined when I presented that entry to him. That was from 2012 during the presidential campaign. He, he had gotten to know Trump a little uh, because Trump had endorsed Romney. And, you know, at first he he was a little defensive about it. But then, you know, Romney kind of so, something that he said that I thought was actually uh, pretty insightful was, look, you know, there is a reason Donald Trump has been able to win over all of these Republicans who, you know, uh, who say who, who didn't like him at the beginning of the campaign or who vocally opposed him in the 2016 primaries or whatever. And it's because there is a seductive quality to him. He can be in person very charismatic. He can be gossipy and funny and outrageous. You know, Mitt Romney actually had known Trump for decades before he ran for president um, in the 90s, actually. Romney took a trip to Mar-a-Lago with some business associate business associates and uh you know kind of took in this surreal weekend uh at Trump's Trump's compound in Palm Beach and and you know he had always thought of Trump as kind of a loudmouth celebrity not a serious political figure certainly but really not even a serious business for a figure he he saw him as somebody who was good at getting attention and you know very famous and could be fun to hang out with for a day or two and that continued to be his impression of trump up until 2016 and you know um once trump started running for president romney assumed at first that he would flame out that you know this was just a case of a very famous person who was getting some heat in the polls because he was well known but once he realized he had this staying power, Romney really started to worry about what Trump was saying, what what it was about Trump's campaign that was garnering so much support among Republican uh, voters. And that's when I think Romney's view of Trump started to flip. Once he started to have once he had to start taking him seriously as a politician, he recognized him for how dangerous he was. But before that, when he saw him as a celebrity, you know, he he liked hanging out with him. He thought he was uh, he, he thought it was a good hang. <laughs> and I think that uh, that that was a jarring thing for him to experience. One of the things when I picked up your book and started reading it, I look for this because I always wanted to know what he really thought about this. This is from August the 2nd, 2012, the floor of the United States Senate. Harry Reid is saying the following. This is about a minute. Let's listen. When we're talking about trust, we need to look no further than the person that Mitt Romney wants to, uh, that my friend, the Republican leader, wants to uh, be president of the United States. He's refused to release his tax returns, as we know. If a person coming before this body wanted to be a cabinet officer, he couldn't be if he had... The re- he did the same refusal Mitch Romney does about tax returns. So the word's out that he hasn't paid any taxes for 10 years. Let him prove that he has paid taxes because he hasn't. We already know from one partial tax return that he gave us, he has money hidden in Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, and a Swiss bank account. Not making that up, that's in the partial year that he gave us. Mitt Romney makes more money in a single day than the average middle-class family makes in two years. How much of that was true? Um, 
some of it was arguably true, but the the central claim, the one that got the most attention that Mitt Romney hadn't paid taxes in 10 years was not true. And it was it was documented as untrue uh, later. And I, I'm glad you asked about this because I actually thought this was kind of a fascinating story. So this was in 2012 that Harry Reid was making this claim. It went viral. Uh, it became kind of a, a article of faith among certain elements of the Democratic Party that Mitt Romney had managed to go 10 years without paying taxes. Romney denied it at the time, but it sort of just became a, a well-known meme in the campaign. Um, after the 2012 election, Harry Reid was asked about it and uh, and, you know, basically the reporter said you know this wasn't true how do you feel about making this claim and harry reed sort of smirked and said well he romney didn't win did he uh which was basically a tacit acknowledgement i think that reed was lying right um and that and that he was okay with having lied because it hurt romney politically what's the coda to this story um that i didn't know about until i interviewed romney for this book is that years later, once Harry Reid was, uh, he had been diagnosed with cancer, he was, you know, getting worse. And uh, he had, a, he asked to meet with Romney uh, and in Salt Lake City. And so Mitt and Ann went and, and traveled to Salt Lake and, and met with Harry Reid. And they expected that he would apologize. They thought that this was going to be the moment that Harry Reid sort of on his deathbed apologized for having lied about this. Um Reed uh, sat down with him, and once he he started talking, he apologized for the comment he later made to the reporter for being uh, too glib in saying, oh, you know, uh, he didn't win, did he? But he didn't apologize for making the central claim about the taxes. And what Mitt told me was that as they were sitting there, he could he could feel his wife, Anne, getting agitated as she realized that Harry Reed wasn't going to apologize for this. And... Um, but Romney kind of looked at Reed and saw, you know, he was bloated from the the medication he had been on and he looked in, in pretty bad shape. And Romney just sort of let, left him off the hook and said, OK, you know, it's fine, whatever. And when they left, his wife said, how could you have, you know, forgiven him when he didn't even really apologize? And he said, look, the, I, I'm not going to hold a grudge against him. But what he told me was that he he couldn't he he had always known that harry reed was a very partisan individual but that he was kind of shocked by how partisan he was and so they really never did bury the hatchet after that it, it was it remained a source of enormous frustration for mitt romney this is really not a fair thing i'm about to ask you about but my reaction when i first saw that is they're both mormons you know mm-hmm. and i mean that's you know in politics, it doesn't matter. But it it uh, it just I, I and you're a Mormon, and so we might as well you you deal with that in the back of the book. So mm-hmm. talk through that, and should we expect one Mormon to not attack another one? Is I guess my question. No, you know, I, it's funny. I actually somebody who read the book who is also Mormon noted recently that there are quite a few Mormon characters in this book, and, and most of them are politicians. And it, you know, Harry Reid, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, Orrin Hatch, and all of them are actually quite different. You know, <laughs> quite different in temperament, fairly different politics. Even you know, among the Republicans, Mike Lee is a stalwart Trump ally. Uh, Mitt Romney, obviously, a Trump critic. They have very different approaches to legislation and, and to their conservatism. And 
Uh, you know, I, I think that actually this book demonstrates that Mormons, you know, like any members of any religious minority, they're not a monolith. They think differently. They act differently. Um, you know, so I think some people were surprised by the level of animosity that existed between Harry Reid and Mitt Romney in particular. But I actually think the fact that they were both Mormon probably contributed somewhat to that animosity. <laughs> you know, sometimes you feel like the 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 harshest feuds are within a family, right? <laughs> and maybe the fact that they, they had a shared faith um, contributed to the hostility toward each other because they disagreed so much on politics. But I think that I hope that readers will see that, you know, within within Mormonism, there is a, a pretty broad range of politics and uh, and personalities. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. What impact do you think it had on your ability to get all this from Mitt Romney that you also are a Mormon? Yeah, well, it's funny. I've been covering Mitt Romney for more than a decade, and and I covered his 2012 presidential campaign, and I was the only Mormon reporter on the campaign press bus most of the time. There were, you know, sometimes others came along, but for the most part, I was the one Mormon reporter kind of following him around the country. And I think a lot of people assumed that meant I would get some kind of special access to Mitt Romney. And, and the fact was that it was actually the opposite back then. His campaign consultants had decided that just as a matter of political strategy, they didn't want to talk about religion. And I, I was the uh, inconvenient reporter constantly writing stories about how Mitt Romney's politics intersected with his faith. And so that led them to kind of keep me at arm's length. By the time... I pitched him on writing this book. He was in a different position. Obviously, he was a senator from Utah. He wasn't trying to be a president anymore. So he didn't need to kind of hide the ball quite as much when it came to his faith. Um, and he told me at the outset of the the interviews uh, that he said, I think it's an advantage that you get the Mormon thing. <laughs> and I didn't totally know what he meant at that point. But what I found as we started talking was that for one thing, um, you know, our, our, we had a shared shorthand, right? Like when he was talking about his Mormon mission in France, he didn't need to, you know, explain every detail of what a mission is and how it works the way he would to perhaps a non-Mormon biographer. So that was useful. But maybe even more useful was that I, I was able to understand his motivations in some ways, just having, uh, you know, grown up in the same church, read the same scriptures, sung the same hymns, you know, so much of his political and moral reasoning uh, over the last, you know, 30 years, certainly, but especially the last six or seven years during the Trump era has been rooted in Mormon theology and Mormon uh, ideas that I, I understood. We also, there, a, a special point of connection is that both of us grew up Mormon in places where there are not many Mormons. I grew up in Massachusetts. He grew up in Michigan. And something he said to me at one point was that, um, you know, something you learn growing up Mormon outside of a place like Utah is that you you learn to get used to being different in ways that are important to you. 
And I think that that uh, that idea has also been very visible in his politics, uh, political life over the last few years, as he's increasingly, you know, found himself isolated in the Republican Party by being different in ways that are important to him. And I think that I kind of innately understood that in a way that perhaps another biographer might not have. Speaking of religion, <clears throat> he has some comments uh, that you say how he felt uh, about uh, vi- former Vice President Pence. Mm. And I'll read it. He found the Vice President's brand of sycophancy, which he casually in- intertwined with Christian moralizing, especially sickening. Quote, no one had been more loyal, more willing to smile when he saw absurdities, more willing to ascribe God's will to things that were ungodly than Mike Pence. Romney would tell me later. How did you interpret that? I think that Mitt Romney is especially judgmental of people who have found a way to reconcile their uh, Christian faith with supporting and very actively championing Donald Trump. And I think part of this is is rooted in Mitt Romney's own frustration with courting the evangelical voters in 2008 and 2012 as a presidential candidate. Romney found often in both of those campaigns struggled to convince conservative evangelicals especially that he was uh, one of them, right? That he shared their values, that he shared their their policy uh, preferences, that he could be their champion, because evangelicals, at least most of them, don't view Mormons as authentic Christians. And there's a long kind of theological rivalry between evangelicals and Mormons. And Romney, you know, was constantly doing this dance to try to convince evangelicals that uh, they should they should vote for him. And what frustrated him was to watch in 2016, as many of those evangelical leaders and voters who were so wary of Mitt Romney because of his Mormon faith, um, enthusiastically line up behind Donald Trump, who had had no apparent faith to speak of and whose personal life was riddled with you know, inconsistencies, to say the least, with uh, Christian values. I think Mitt Romney has struggles with people like Mike Pence uh, because he thinks that Donald Trump is so anathema to Christian ethics and values and morals. Um, But also, I think there's probably part of this, and he might disagree with this characterization, but I I think that there's part um, part of his attitude toward Christian Trump supporters supporters is rooted in his own uh, kind of frustration with uh, with how they weren't willing to support him as enthusiastically when he ran for president. You have a paragraph about what he felt about the United States Senate. Uh, again, I want to read it if you don't mind. They gave speeches to empty chambers, spent hours debating bills they all knew would never pass. They summoned experts to appear at committee hearings only to make them sit in silence while they blathered some more. The hearings were especially irksome to Romney. Quote, they were not about learning. They were not about fact finding. They were not about performing, Romney complained. Sometimes I get a little frustrated. If uh, we have someone there who's interesting, why we are giving speeches. And anybody that has ever watched this network knows uh, (laughs) what he's talking about there and how frustrated was he about that? 
Yeah, I think that he was really disappointed with how the Senate functioned once he got there. You know, Mitt Romney is an institutionalist at heart. He he believes in the U.S. government and its core institutions. And he had this kind of quaint notion that, you know, somewhere in the federal government, um, there were smart, sober minded people sitting in rooms, drawing up long term plans to address the uh, the the you know problems and and uh, crises that loomed over America, right? And what he he assumed that the Senate might have a lot of those adults in rooms, kind of figuring out how to address the problems of America. But when he got to the Senate, he found that very few of them actually seemed interested in that. He was told early on by one Senate colleague, um, "Mate, you have to understand, about twenty senators do all the work, and the other eighty are along for the ride. They just want to get on TV, they want to give speeches, they want to perform and raise money, but they're not actually interested in legislating." And Mitt Romney wanted right away to make it known that he was going to be one of the 20. He was going to, you know, roll up his sleeves and get involved in legislation. But he was disappointed by how few of his colleagues seemed interested in legislating, given that this was at least ostensibly supposed to be a legislative body. During during this period of time, uh, because Donald Trump's an issue every day in the news, uh, people often say to themselves, uh, how can they say that? If they don't like, of course, if they don't like Donald Trump, but you have a whole, again, a paragraph where you say one thing that quickly became evident as Romney spent more time in the Senate was that his disgust with Trump was not unique among his Republican colleagues. Almost without exception, he said, they shared my view of the president. Hmm. And then you write in public, of course, they played their parts as Trump loyalists, often twisting themselves in humiliating rhetorical contortions to defend the president's most indefensible behaviors. But behind closed doors, they ridiculed his ignorance, rolled their eyes at his antics, and made incisive observations about his warped, toddler-like psyche. In one special moment of candor, a Republican senator privately admitted to Romney, he has none of the qualities you would want in a president and all of the qualities you wouldn't. So just for a moment, depending on what side you're on, how how much have you discovered where people believe these senators and think that they're telling them the truth when they rave about Donald Trump? And and they, but they don't know what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, it's confusing when you read this about how the public is dealing with all this. The good question, you know, sometimes I, I, as a campaign reporter, I often go to Republican rallies, Trump rallies. I interview a lot of voters and talk to them. And it, it's interesting because there's often a mix of cynicism and, and kind of idealism when they talk about these things. They'll say, well, we know po- all politicians are snakes and they say whatever they need to get elected. But when they when they see these senators get up on stage before a Trump uh, speech and enthusiastically endorse him or when they watch him on watch them on Fox News or see them give speeches praising Donald Trump, I think they want to believe that that's real. And they tend to they tend to believe it is real. I think that, you know, all of us want to believe that we're right, you know. And so when we have uh, political leaders saying things that are flattering to our worldview, uh, we want to believe them. But this is something that drove Romney crazy as a senator, because, you know, he told me 
that more more than once, many times, he would have a Republican Senate colleague kind of sidle up to him in private and lean in and say, hey, Mitt, I'm so glad that you're out there uh, saying what you're saying and doing what you're doing and criticizing, you know, Trump. And, and I wish I could do the same thing. But, you know, I can't because I, I have my election to worry about. And it, it really bothered Romney because part of the the thing that he hoped for when he got to the Senate was that he could use his his seat and his influence and his his kind of elder statesman role to steer the party away from Trumpism. Um, but what he found was that so many of his Senate colleagues, while they privately agreed with him, were just so petrified of losing reelection that they weren't willing to do anything that might uh, threaten that. And he he told me, you know, the more time he spent in the Senate, and this came up again and again, the more he realized that re-election was the first concern for most of his colleagues, and that um, for a lot of them, the prospect of losing their Senate seat and the big office and the staff and all the trappings of their position was such a threat that it was almost akin to death. That you know, they they just couldn't do anything that would risk their Senate seat. There was an enormous kind of psychic attachment uh, to uh, their their job, and it made it very hard for the Senate to function in a way that that at least Mitt Romney thought was productive. So, how do you deal with this? In talking about your book with people, and you know, I was saying how candid he was and all that, they almost immediately say, "Well, he's not running again." Mm-hmm. I mean, what I say mm-hmm. is that yep. normally you don't even hear what he's saying until they're completely out of the chamber. Uh, and you deal with that in the book where he finds himself around the Senate dining room and nobody wants to talk to him. How, how, That's right. How bad was that? He, he and I hear that criticism. Right. Why? Why? Why is he only speaking up now that he's not running for reelection? And, and it's fair. Right. I will say when we started talking I think he was still very much openly considering running again in Utah. He he had not made up his mind not to run for re-election. And as you point out, he's still in his job. He has another year left, more than a year left. Um, and he thought this book actually was going to come out earlier. That's a little behind the scenes publishing st- innuendo. But he thought he was pushing for this. But he kept asking, when is this coming out? When is it coming out? So he was not afraid of the blowback, but it has had a real consequence for him. I mean, he told me that the the Senate Republican caucus lunches remind him of the high school cafeteria where he'll get there and he looks around and he's not sure who to sit with. And he when he raises his hand to make a comment, he feels like people are kind of rolling their eyes at him uh, that, you know, they don't trust him. They don't like him. They feel like he's a traitor. And that 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 eats at him a little bit because he was not that long ago, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the the standard bearer of the Republican Party. He was their presidential nominee. And so to now be in this position where he's essentially a pariah in his caucus, a pariah in his party, that that takes a real personal toll on him. And so he, it's not as if he hasn't sacrificed anything to come out and tell the truth and tell me these stories. He, he has He's had to there have been real trade offs for him. And I I think he deserves some credit for being willing to be so honest while he's still a sitting senator. Here's another speaking of uh, (laughs) sitting next to somebody. What bothered Romney most about Hawley's speech was the same thing that had gotten him about cruises, the oily disingenuousness. 
They know better, he would later tell me. Josh Hawley is one of the smartest people in the Senate, if not the smartest, and Ted Cruz could give him a run for his money. They both are really, really smart guys. Uh, But after you've called somebody an oily, oily disingenuous, how do you sit next to them? (laughs) Or how do you even deal with them? I mean, well, there are even worse. I mean, you know, he talks about his colleague J.D. Vance from Ohio, yes, yes. Who, who he told me it would be hard for me to disrespect someone more than J.D. Vance. I mean, there are a handful of senators who he is especially uh, judgmental of. And, and it actually has more to do with their disingenuousness than anything else. He, you know, he told me, I, I get along fine with Republican senators who believe crazy conspiracy theories if they actually believe them. He mentioned Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who he he argues, you know, uh, believes all kinds of crazy things. But he said he, he genuinely seems to believe those things. And so uh, I, I respect him more because he's not lying to people, whereas he feels like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance are sort of putting on this persona uh, because they they want to get reelected and be stars of the Republican base. But it is a good question. How do you sit next to these people at lunch? How do you interact with them on the Senate floor? I think that for a handful of senators, he's essentially made up his mind that he's not really going to get any work done with them. But the reality is, you know, if you read this book, you'll see that for the most part, he's he's not, you know, he, he's often returning fire. Right. The, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance have been extremely outspoken in their criticism of Mitt Romney over the years, especially during the Trump era. He didn't didn't have any illusions that. They liked him or respected him or wanted to be, you know, working partners with him in the Senate already. So it's not as if he's losing new, you know, long, long friendships over those comments. But I do think I mean, I will say after the first excerpt of this book came out, I checked in with Mitt Romney's staff and said, you know, how are things going for you over there? (laughs) And they said he's skipping the Senate caucus lunches for a while. So I think that speaks to uh, what what the reaction to the book has been in the Senate. We know that Senator McConnell and Donald Trump don't get along. There's publicity about it all the time. But in your book, you have some quotes here. Uh, Later that day on the Senate floor, Romney thanked McConnell for sticking up for him with Trump. Quote, it wasn't for you so much as for him, McConnell replied. He's an idiot. He doesn't think when he says things. How stupid do you have to be to not realize that you shouldn't attack your jurors? And what was that about? This was uh, in the lead up to the Republican or the, the Senate impeachment trial, the first trial in 2019, 2020. Um, Donald Trump had kind of gone on a tear attacking Mitt Romney on Twitter. And Mitch McConnell had reportedly gone to Trump and said, hey, you need to cool it because you're going to need support from all these senators if and when there is a, a, a Senate trial for your impeachment. And Mitt Romney went up to him and said, hey, you know, thanks for standing up for me. And and that's when McConnell made the comments that you just read. Um you know, this is an especially vivid example of um, Republican senators and Republican leaders saying one thing publicly and, and another thing privately. I, I certainly don't think we would see Mitch McConnell go out in public and call Donald Trump an idiot. <laughs> but but it's interesting. Romney's perception of McConnell was sort of ambivalent because on the one hand, he actually really admired how McConnell 
bled his caucus. He was a very deft manager of egos. He was good at getting his Republican colleagues to, uh, you know, get in line and do what he needed them to do. Um, but on the other hand, he ne- Romney never quite knew how seriously to take comments like that because he sometimes wondered if McConnell, knowing that Mitt Romney really disliked Donald Trump, was just saying what he knew Romney wanted to hear. Um, and, and so Romney always kind of had this question of, you know, does McConnell actually agree with me on Trump or is this just another case of him kind of uh, playing to his audience? You mentioned this earlier, but uh, I must say, after I read the book, I keep seeing Mitt Romney in his townhouse here in Washington, near the Capitol, with, a, as you say, a 92-inch television set on the wall. <laughs> He's sitting there alone at night, has no friends in the Washington area. And I just, you know, uh, explain that. Why, mm. what, well, one, why doesn't he have friends in the Washington area? And I mean, he's, the man's been in politics all his life. So help us on that one. But I can just see him sitting there wondering why he even does this anymore. Yeah. I mean, when I started interviewing him, it was uh, the spring of 2021. And by that point, he had really alienated most of the Republican Party with his various stands against Donald Trump. And so the people who would have naturally been his friends and allies and house guests and dinner guests uh, had, had kind of begun to take their distance from him, if not full fully turn on him. Right. Um, but then, you know, a lot of Democrats also didn't really know what to make of him because they, they had spent so many years battling with him as was kind of the leader of the Republican Party. So, you know, he I was surprised when I first started interviewing him just how alone he was in Washington. Um, I would often get, you know, I tried to keep my interviews short because I didn't want him to kind of get sick of me. And so (laughs) I would often get to the end of my questions and sort of close my laptop and say, all right, well, thank you, Senator. And he would say, "Uh, so are you reading anything good lately? Or, you know, what, what are you watching on TV these days? It was like he wanted me to stay because he just enjoyed the company. He was kind of that isolated. I will say, um, by the end of the time that I was I was meeting with him for this book, he had sort of started to find a friend group in in the Senate, and it was sort of this bipartisan gang of senators that involved people like Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Kirsten Cinema, um, senators who uh, were were not kind of in the thrall of the ba- to the bases of their party their respective parties and were willing to work on bipartisan legislation. And I even could see how much he enjoyed finally kind of having a group of of senators who he liked spending time with and he respected. But part of his decision to to not seek reelection was that he sort of looked around and saw that a lot of those senators were either gone or on their way out. You know, Rob Portman uh, from uh, Ohio uh, Kirsten Cinema is, you know, her reelection prospects are looking dicey. Joe Manchin has has decided not to run. He 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 looked around and wondered, you know, if the handful of senators who I actually get along with and and have you know trust enough to work on le- legislation with, if they're all go if they're all leaving, what am I going to do for another six years in the Senate? You know, I don't want to spend. Uh, another six years sitting next to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in a caucus lunch and not getting anything done. 
You write a lot about how he feels about his dad, who's been deceased for a long time. Um, there, and I, by the way, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the brainwashed mm-hmm. uh, statement that people were making. And they say he ran George Romney out of the presidential race. And I keep thinking, what's so wrong with saying you're brainwashed? If you look at Vietnam today, there were a lot of people that would say mm-hmm. they were brainwashed. Why did that? What did you find out from him about that comment and why that forced his father out of the campaign? So George Romney had changed his position on Vietnam. He had started out supportive of the Vietnam War and then become more and more critical of it. And he was asked in this this interview while he was running for president, um, you know, what uh, what 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 happened? Why did you change your mind? And what he said was, I went out over to Vietnam and uh, I was I, I was brainwashed by the generals, um, essentially basically saying and I don't think it's an unreasonable point, like you you said that, you know, the the story we were being sold about this this war was wrong. And we were told that it was you know, going to be a somewhat limited conflict and that it was, you know, wouldn't become this quagmire. And and we were just we were brainwashed. Right. Um, But it was that word, the use of the word brainwashed or brainwashing that kind of became the fixation of the press and the his his opponents in the Republican primary. Everybody fixated on it. And it was partly because the word conjured sort of uncomfortable images of whether, you know, it was religious cultists or Manchurian candidates or whatever. But um, his his campaign was already sort of starting to to trend downward. But that was sort of the the end, really. It, It was fully unraveled because of that word. And what's interesting is that Mitt Romney at that point was a Mormon missionary in France. And so he wasn't involved in the day to day of the campaign, but what he, the lesson he took from that, that experience was that his dad, who he idolized and he thought was the embodiment of integrity and public service. And, you know, this kind of courageous truth teller that, um, that his campaign had been undone by one poorly chosen word in an interview. And one when Mitt, decades later, embarked on his own political career, he found himself constantly thinking about that and his dad's experience and wanting to make sure that he didn't accidentally say something wrong in an interview that would, you know, end his entire political career. And you could sense that cautiousness in Mitt Romney, right? You could sense that he was always choosing his words so carefully, sticking so carefully to his his talking points. And it was I think it was in large part because of the experience that he had uh he had seen from his father. Though I will say to your point, he still gets mad when he's asked about that 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 George Romney brainwashing quote. I I mean I remember asking him about it and he got all worked up saying, you know, people knew what he meant. They were just being disingenuous and pretending they didn't know and the, you know, he could he still remembers political cartoons from the from that year that were that were you know drawn about George Romney. So he still gets upset about it, but I think in a lot of ways he he took it as a sort of cautionary tale for his own political career. Have you talked to him since the book came out? I have. Yeah, we we've texted. <laughs> What's his reaction to the reaction to the book? I I want to let him mostly speak to that himself. I mean, in general, I think the blowback that he's gotten um, is 
you know, more or less what he expected. He knew that there would be a lot of Republicans who were upset with him. Um, I think, though, the one thing that surprised him is how much attention the book has gotten. I, mean, I, I could never tell if this modesty on his part was false or, or genuine. But, you know, when I first approached him about the book and then all throughout the two years of interviews, he was constantly kind of saying, oh, uh, you know, nobody's going to read this book. I'll make sure my family buys a hundred copies so you at least can, you know, sell a few. But I'm, you know, I, I don't expect very many people to to read this. And the reality is it's, you know, gotten an enormous reception. A lot of people are interested in what he has to say. And I think he's been taken aback by that because he sort of felt like he had rendered himself politically irrelevant. And uh, the degree to which people are interested in his story, interested in his impressions, um, I think has, has surprised him. What is your reaction to the fact that it's still on the bestseller list? <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, enormously gratified. Um, Did you expect that? I know. I mean, frankly, uh, you know, I hoped for it, but I did not expect this book to make the the uh, the dent that it has. I think that, um, you know, part of the the weirdness of, of this process was that for most of those two years when I was working on this book, I was doing so in secret um, because we didn't announce the book when I it was the, I first signed the contract because. You know, I wanted to sort of retain that spy behind enemy lines quality that that uh, colored a lot of our conversations. And Mitt didn't want his colleagues to know that he was talking to a biographer. So the what what that meant, though, was that very few people knew about it. And I found I found many times throughout those two years, I found myself wondering, is anyone going to care about this? Is anyone going to be as interested in this as I am? Because <laughs> I thought the stories were so fascinating. But you know, Mitt Romney, for so much of his political career, had been defined by caution and and, you know, was seen as very kind of staid and starchy and and square. And I, I just didn't know if people would find him as compelling as I did as a subject. So it's been extremely gratifying and frankly, a bit of a relief that so many people have found him as interesting as I, I have. You say you're from Massachusetts. Where in Massachusetts? A uh, town called Holliston, right right around where the Boston Marathon starts. That's you, my point of reference. <laughs> where where did you go to uh, college? Uh, Brigham Young University in Utah. And then what did you do? Uh, I got an internship right out of college at Newsweek magazine uh, in New York, where uh, I – this was in 2010 um, – is not a very good time for the journalism industry. The Graham family actually put the magazine up for sale right when I started as an intern. Um, but I got a, the internship uh, turned into a job. I was there for a year and a half. And then I joined a fledgling news upstart called BuzzFeed to cover the, uh, the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 and stayed there through 2016 before joining the Atlantic magazine. And what's the Atlantic magazine for someone who doesn't read it? Uh, the Atlantic was started actually uh, in the run-up to the Civil War as in part an abolitionist journal, um, and it's a uh, it's a magazine of politics ideas. Uh, we see ourselves as the explainers of and champions of the American experiment, um, but uh, it's a, a monthly magazine with a daily web presence. With I, I you say in a totally biased way, a collection of some of the best writers in in America um, grappling with the difficult questions of uh, of politics and policy and democracy and and uh, and literature 
And, uh, you know, the other thing I'll say for it, just as a selling point, it's a place where we have a lot of different writers with very different points of view on subjects, uh, often kind of in conversation and in debate with each other, which is something that I think is increasingly missing in our, our media landscape. Any any impact on you that Steve Jobs is, uh, he's now deceased, but his widow owns the magazine. I've met Loreen a handful of times. She's been a wonderful steward of the magazine, uh, which is to say she's provided a lot of resources and support, but without really meddling in the editorial side of things. So while I've met her a few times and uh, she's she's wonderful to talk to, I have never heard from her in, you know, in terms of trying to steer a story or anything like that, which I think is kind of the best you can hope for in an, an owner of a place like this. So your prologue, uses um, the map as a way to get us into mm. this book. What, what is the map, and why did that intrigue you enough for you to use it to introduce us to uh, Mitt Romney? Yeah, it's called the Histo Map. Um, it, it was first, I think, uh, the first version of it was printed in the 1930s by Randy McNally, and it's a, essentially a um, it's a big chart on the wall of Mitt Romney's Senate office that is trying to essentially chart the rise and fall of the most powerful civilizations throughout human history. And so you look at it and you see the Greeks and the Romans, the Egyptians, the Assyrians. Um, and Mitt Romney hung it in his office shortly after getting there in 2019 and sort of saw it as a curiosity, kind of something interesting to, to show visitors. After January 6th, he became obsessed with it. And he would bring it up in speeches and interviews constantly. Sometimes he would find himself at night in his office just staring at it. Um, and the the thing that uh, that kind of haunted him about it and that he told me, I remember in one of our very first interviews, he pointed it out to me. He said, if you look at this map, for the vast majority of human history, the most powerful uh, civilizations have been autocracies of some kind, right? Kaisers, kings, emperors, rulers, whatever. These are people who uh, dominate and rule over their subjects rather than having governments that are ruled by the people. And his point was that America's experiment in self-rule is a very fragile thing and a fairly new thing. And we all take for granted that it will continue in perpetuity, but there is no guarantee of that. And after January 6th, he said that he he became increasingly concerned about the fragility of American democracy. He said authoritarianism is like the gargoyle uh, lurking over the cathedral ready to pounce. And um, when we started the interviews for this book, he was openly wrestling with the question of whether the cathedral could hold um and i think he still is very concerned about that he is concerned about how many of our fellow americans seem to be losing faith in democracy and in core democratic ideas that are supposed to be foundational to the country and unless we can be aware of that and have a, a series of difficult open conversations about it we might uh find ourselves in a, a very precarious situation very soon same prologue you talk about his anger, I'll read this and then 
get your response. He's angry at the president for lying to so many Americans, angry at his Republican colleagues for cynically going along with the ploy. He's angry that the United States Senate, supposedly the world's greatest deliberative body, will be reduced to a pathetic spectacle of anti-democratic theater as lawmakers cast self-serving votes to overturn a presidential election. How angry does he get and, and how, how does he how is it exemplified? Well, that on that day in January 6th, um, he was struggling to kind of contain his emotions until the moment that um, the Senate chamber needs to be evacuated because a mob of the president's supporters have broken through police barricades and are now flooding into the Capitol. And at that moment, Mitt Romney turns to Josh Hawley and who's huddled with some of his fellow right-wing lawmakers and just starts to shout at them. He kind of loses it in a way that Mitt Romney very rarely does in public. Um, there are various accounts uh, of what he actually said in that moment. Some people said uh, that he said, you did this or uh, this is your fault. But that basically, uh, that was the gist. He basically turned to them and yelled, this is your fault, what's happening? Um, and Mitt Romney is somebody who does not lose his cool in public very often. It's kind of his defining trait of his public persona. Um, but that anger has stayed with him from January 6th. He, he still, years later, if you ask him about it, he'll get angry all over again about the lies being told about the election, about his colleagues who were willing to to spread those lies and uh, mostly about how unprepared they were. Um, you know, he, I report in the book that he had actually texted uh, Mitch McConnell a few days before January 6th and laid out what he was, what he feared was the worst case scenario for that day. And he said, there are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into D.C. and to storm the Capitol. And and he wanted to make sure that there were sufficient security protocols in place. There, of course, weren't. Um, and, and it just still kind of baffles him that his party was willing to go along with this and that nobody was prepared for what it might lead to. And I think that uh, that still he, he struggles to understand. We need to close this down, but I want to ask you, um, after you've done this book and talked about it, any impact on you change your views on government, the Senate, democracy, any of that stuff? I think at the end of reporting the book and writing the book, I was maybe more dispirited about where our government was and the kind of how how ready most of our elected leaders were to confront the challenge, the kind of crisis of democracy that we're in. But I, I guess the hopeful coda to that is that on the book tour, as I've been, you know, traveling around the country, meeting people who have read this book, sometimes on college campuses with younger people who hope to go into politics one day or serve in government, um, I've been kind of pleasantly surprised and inspired by how many people are willing to sin sincerely read this book, grapple with its ideas, and who really want to, and this goes for people on the right and left who who see the challenge that we're facing see the the kind of sickness in our democracy and want to figure out how to solve it that they you know they they are not um you know they, i've met many right-leaning young people 
who are reading this book and saying, I want to go to Washington and help fix it. And, and I'm, I'm that, that I think is one of the most gratifying, um, uh, responses to the book because the last thing I would want, and I think the last thing Mitt Romney would want is for you to read this book and come away despairing that there's no way, uh, to, to turn around the, the crisis that we're in. I think Mitt Romney is somebody who has spent his life uh, in turnarounds, whether in the financial world or at the Olympics or as governor of Massachusetts. And he's hopeful. He, he believes, you know, he's retiring. He's in his 70s now, but he's hopeful that a new generation will come to Washington and and help help make this place a little better. And I, I'm 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 more hopeful about that now, too. Cover of the book has the name Romney on it and the subtitle A Reckoning. Our guest for the last hour, McKay Coppins of The Atlantic magazine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.